0: Welcome to the Renegade Nutrition Podcast, where we discuss all things wellness. I'm Eleni Welch, nutritionist. And I'm Kay Boyer, health enthusiast. Welcome back, Renegades. Welcome, Renegades. I'm excited. This is a special episode, which we have a lot of special episodes, but this one is near and dear to Eleni's heart with a piece of her genetics here. <laughs> yes.
1: yes. We today get to interview my sister. Yeah. My older sister. Yeah.
0: She's like a blonde Eleni. This is So cool. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Yes, so we get to interview
1: Dr. Christina Ste, who is a psychologist in the Kelowna area, and you work virtually, so you see people from all over. Is that right, too?
2: Yes, yes. I'm licensed in Iowa, so I can see anybody who uh, is a resident of Iowa. Cool. So all of our listeners who don't have video,
1: you get to play the game the whole time of Guess Which Sister Is Talking. Oh, you're right. Your voices are so
0: similar. You're so right. So she'll
1: be the one who's saying smart psychological
0: stuff. And yes. I'll be the one who's like, uh-huh. uh-huh, uh-huh. uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do they think about food? You got it, Eleni. Yeah. You got it.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh. no. But in all, all seriousness, I'm super excited to have my sister on here. I'm super proud of her. She just published a book recently this year called Don't Pass It On. That's all about, um, well, we'll talk about it in the podcast, but all about eating disorders and how to not pass that sort of disordered thinking onto your child if you are a parent who has struggled with eating disorders or disordered behaviors
0: in the past. Smart. So. I imagine your family table was so smart. Your IQ collectively in your household had to be very high. I'm just going to say that. So <laughs> good job. Good job so.
1: Definitely. Well, welcome to the
0: podcast, Christina. Yes. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Yes. We're okay. To get you introduced to our listeners, tell us your story and what made you to decide to become a psychologist. Sure.
2: Um, well, I, I feel like I have kind of, well, I love kids. So that was something early on. I was obsessed with babies from the time that I was like, very, very little. So I always knew that I wanted to work with kids. Um, and then um, I think kind of, you know, as that progressed at first, I thought that maybe I wanted to be a teacher or have a daycare or something like that. Um, and then I really started to get kind of more into psychology and, um, I would say when I was in high school, um, I started just experiencing um, while kind of going through like my own mental health stuff that I feel like probably every teenager does. Um, but I also had um, a good friend of mine who um, at the time uh, between like our junior and senior year, um, she actually developed an eating disorder. So that kind of say, seg- weighed me into the eating disorder piece of it. Um, and then um, I actually took a psychology class um, my senior year in high school um, and um, loved it. And um, and I really loved my biology classes, too, and especially just everything about learning about the brain um, and why our brain does what it does and learning about the amygdala, which is like our emotional center. And so um, I knew i went into college um, declared in psychology Um, so at that point i didn't know exactly what i wanted to do in that field but um, i knew that that was the path that i wanted to take Um, and then i got a job at uh, the daycare of my university um, and it was for uh, college students that had kids and so it was a place like they, they could have their kids and then they can go to school and not have to worry about daycare for their kids um, so that was awesome. That was my first, like, real job that I had, um, and I got to work with toddlers, and it was lovely most of the time. Um, uh, and most of my coworkers there that were um, working were child development majors, and I had didn't know anything about child development or what the degree was, um, but they seemed to really love it, and they loved their professors, and so then... I looked into child development as well, and I figured out that a lot of the classes could overlap between child development and psychology. So I actually ended up double majoring in child development and psychology. Um, And it was actually my child development courses and my professors that really prompted me to go to graduate school um, for clinical psychology. So I actually don't think that I would have necessarily taken the path that I did had I just kept my psychology major, kind of ironically. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I went into a um, graduate program, um, Azusa Pacific University, which is in Southern California. And uh, I got my doctorate in psychology there. And uh, yeah, that's basically kind of the start of everything. So that's how I got to be where I was and then obviously I moved to Iowa at some point so I've been here since October
0: 2015. Awesome. And now you watch um you can zoom with your with um clients and do you, what ages are do you kind of have for your clients and then will their mm-hmm. parents be on at the same time or is it just the kid? I'm just curious what that looks like. Sure.
2: Yeah, so I work, um, I I do kind of like 50-50. I do um half therapy um and I work predominantly with kids and teenagers. Um I do also work with some young adults, like college age people, and most of the young adult clients that I have started with me as teenagers mm-hmm. and then I just didn't get rid of them.
0: Yeah, they <laughs> um, wanna keep so, you. Yep. Uh
2: yeah, I kind of segued into that. Um And so uh, that's what I do primarily for therapy, and I work um, with uh, the neurodivergent population is probably my biggest population, so I work with a lot of kids with um, ADHD, autism, learning difficulties, um, and then there's a lot of just kind of co-occurring like anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, I work with uh, trauma as well, so um, kids that have gone through abuse or neglect or just had other traumatic events um covid Mm -hmm. being one of them Mm -hmm. so i've been working through um just a natural like the derecho that we had a few years ago Um, so a lot of things like that and then the other half of what i do is testing um and i do testing for pretty much all ages at this point um and again kind of i would say more focused around like the neurodivergent population so if people are looking at um Wanting to get diagnosed and see if they meet criteria for ADHD or autism, or if there's a learning disability, or if there's um, uh, sensory issues going on, or things like that. Um, that's what I do. Um, when I'm working with kids, I am very, uh, I do keep the parents pretty involved. So I do my therapy sessions one on one for the most part with the kids. Um, But I really try to keep the parents involved. So I'll do parent check-ins. I might do parent sessions, just kind of one-on-one with the parents. Um, And sometimes we do sessions together with the parents and the kids together, too.
0: Wow, that's really cool. And everything you've listed here, I'm like, oh, yes, America, we need lots of you. So (laughs) that's really great. And yeah, keep doing this important work. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What prompted your decision to research eating disorders for your dissertation?
2: Sure. Um, So it I think really did start I had mentioned um, this friend of mine in high school that um, really started struggling predominantly with some anorexic behaviors. Um, And I at the time, I mean, was really young and I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to help, but I didn't really know how. Um, And I saw just like how much like she struggled and how much like it impacted her life. And so then I was like, that was again, kind of what got me into psychology. And I was like, okay, there's gotta be answers to some of this. Um, And then I would say really kind of in my path um, in my child development degree and just learning all about like the development of children um, and all of that. And just seeing um, we're influenced like from a very early age in so many different areas. Um, And then in graduate school, the the graduate program that I was in was a family systems program. Um, and so that basically, you know, means that we were looking at, you know, a person, a client is not just a client. They don't just like exist in a vacuum. You know, there's many factors that are impacting all areas of their life. So, you know, a, a person's family, um, their school, their, um, their peer group, uh, if they're involved in any sort of, you know, church or faith-based community, um, and um, you know that all of that really impacts us um, so much. Um, and I think you know, with the eating disorder piece of it specifically, I had to—I well, had to do a dissertation to get my doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. And I—I um, I loved the whole piece of child development, and so I think um, I was really looking for a way to kind of combine okay, how can we take what we know about child development and find a way to, can we do some early intervention? Can we figure out a way to address this problem early on? Um, Because as I was doing research, I was especially seeing um, this cycle. So um, that, you know, parents and in particular mothers who struggled with, um, disordered eating, um, or a full fledged eating disorder. A lot of times we would see that kind of generationally get passed down. So, you know, if one member of the family was struggling, um, and particularly between mothers and daughters that, you know, then their, their children would also struggle. So I was really interested in, okay, systemically, like there's gotta be something going on. Um, I think, you know, and I I've never been of the mindset that genetics are like the full answer for things. Um and I think genetics play a part, but I feel like if we stop there then it kind of is just like a dead end and I didn't, you know, I'm like it can't just be like, oh well, it's just genetic and mm-hmm. so like, you know, if your mom had an eating disorder then you're doomed to have an eating disorder too.
0: Yeah, sorry. Um,
2: yeah. so I really kind of wanted to start looking at some of those other factors and systemically can we figure out ways to kind of tackle this even proactively so that there isn't like all of these you know generations coming up that are having the same struggles as what their parents were struggling with
0: oh so interesting that makes me I've got a nine-year-old daughter (laughs) and now you know social media everything is you know in her Mm -hmm. brain now and it's interesting that I'm like now paying attention to that. And I actually, um, I don't struggle with like an eating disorder or like calorie or, but my husband counts calories, but not in a, mm-hmm. not in an unhealthy way, but he's aware he likes to work out, whatever. And my daughter the other day did, was like, Oh, how many calories are in that? And I immediately was like, oh, no, we don't care about calories. You know, and then I was like hyper aware and I was like, eat the pie, you know, no, I'm just kidding. But I, it, it's <laughs> interesting Joe, just being aware of that and kind of, Yeah. So I'm interested to, to, like, read your book to see how I can, like, pave a way that, you know, kind of sets her up, sets her up for a success. So, yeah, yeah. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, too, because one of the nutritional coaching clients I had, I mean, the only one I had that had an d- eating disorder, developed it. And she told me she felt that she developed it because her parents kind of not forced her, but, but their family... Ate a vegetarian diet growing up and so her food Mm -hmm. was very restricted and her parents were very restrictive and controlling about it and they passed this very controlling, her mom in particular she said was a very controlling individual Mm -hmm. and controlled every aspect of her life but especially her food and what she ate and passed Mm. on this tendency to be very controlling about her food so. It's it's just interesting that you notice that from childhood, mm-hmm. all the factors that play yes. in, even a restrictive diet, you know, which I don't condone for kids because they need so many vast right. varieties of food mm-hmm. and restricting their foods and, and limiting what they can eat can can lead to problems. But I always think about it from the gut health standpoint and the hormonal health standpoint, mm-hmm. but I've never thought about it until I met with her from the mental health standpoint of mm-hmm. yes. this restricted eating style, actually ended up mm-hmm. leading to her developing a, a, an eating disorder later in mm-hmm. life because she had just been so controlled about her diet her yeah. whole life that it got so really hard for her to break that
0: psychology and food like it's such a thing how mm-hmm. interesting yeah, yeah. Wow. um
1: okay well so tell us a little bit more about eating disorders what are some of the reasons that somebody develops a disorder and why do some people develop a disorder and some people don't? I know that's a big overarching question, mm-hmm. but what are some of the factors that may lead up to the development of an eating disorder?
2: Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, part of it, I think in some ways kind of depends on like what particular eating disorder that we're talking about, because I would say that different eating disorders um I would say like, are at least like more common in certain populations than in others. But I would say some of the big overarching things would be um, that e- eating disorders, and you kind of started talking about this already too Eleni, that um, most of the time, I would say like in the vast majority of cases, its not it doesn't really even come down to being about food. It comes down to more being about control. Um, and so where I tend to see eating disorders come up as either like a prominent diagnosis that somebody has or if there's just it's kind of just co-occurring with some other things that are going on. Um, I see it a lot in people who have a trauma history. Um, so I would say particularly people who have experienced um, abuse or neglect, um, I would say especially sexual abuse um, and childhood sexual abuse. Um, Because when we talk about abuse in particular, though that's it's it's a violation of our boundaries, right? Our our body boundaries. And as a kid, we have very little control over things, just in general. We have very little control over our environment. We have um and so what I see a lot of times is people who have been through a really significant trauma, which could be abuse or neglect or could be just other things so like a really serious illness in childhood or um, losing um, losing a parent or a family member um, you know um, going through any sort of natural disaster um, and even things like experiencing like really significant bullying in school Um, I just see that a lot of we're all ultimately kind of trying to get control back over our lives in some way Um, and for some people that's I mean one of the things one of the only things sometimes that we can control is and as a kid is maybe what goes into our body Um, and so I think then that tends to be how it ends up getting really targeted around food Um, and then I would say the other thing which I don't know that I would have said this probably 10 years ago when I was working even working on my dissertation but Social media has, um, I feel like, really impacted things. Mm-hmm. And um, the mm-hmm. biggest thing that I see is just there's so much like comparison going on, yeah. mm-hmm. um, yeah. and just that, and it's at our fingertips all that all the time. And we can mm-hmm. constantly see what people are doing, and it's all kind of a facade anyway, because mm-hmm. people can post about whatever they want and apply the filters, and you mm-hmm. know, make their life look like whatever they want it to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of comparison that goes on there. And there's a lot of body comparison that goes on there, too. So I think that that is I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily like a cause of eating disorders and disordered eating. But I feel like it's definitely a factor. It's not that, helping that comes into it.
0: That's it's sure. not helping. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, incre- I even as an adult I find myself like, "Okay, hey, check yourself. Like, stop. Don't compare." Mm-hmm. Like it, it's so for a kid, it's like when that's all you've known. That's yeah. Well, I like
1: some. those Instagram like influencers. I've been seeing this more mm-hmm. often, which is actually kind of refreshing, is some of the women specifically that are you know, they're on Instagram and they're there because they're fitness or whatever. And so they mm-hmm. have all of these pictures on their profile of them Mm -hmm. doing different exercises and their body and how amazing their body looks but one thing I've been seeing is a lot of those women doing real photos
0: and comparing Mm
1: -hmm. what the photo is that they posted on Instagram versus what they really look like without Sucking everything yep, and in, tightening. pulling yep. the like yep. Spanx all the way Tighten, up, yeah. like, yep. and it's a night and day difference. Yep. Yep. And I I've appreciated yeah. that side that comes yep. out because there's so much fake on social media. Just like you said, you mm-hmm. can apply mm-hmm. whatever filter you want, and mm. and you can make your life look beautiful, and you post only the happy moments because who's going to post an, a sad moment yeah, <laughs> for yeah. the most part, yeah. right? Yeah. But I've been appreciating that at least where people sh- put and they will put here's this photo I posted a week ago here's what I actually looked like if I stopped sucking my gut in stopped like flexing my legs exactly the right way like yeah anyway
0: I've been appreciating that I know I know give a little reality check to the to -hmm. the beautiful magazine of Instagram yep what um okay for somebody who has body dysmorphia do they literally see themselves differently than anybody else sees them
2: Okay, yeah, that's a good question. So um, body dysmorphia is something that can, it's, um, it's correlated a lot with eating disorders and I think it gets kind of used um, a lot in concurrence with eating disorders. And I would say, um, and this just from kind of my own experience and working with people, I actually see body dysmorphia um, as kind of more of like an obsessive compulsive behavior than I necessarily see it as like related to an eating disorder, oh. though it, they they can overlap and, and OCD is actually really commonly co occurring with eating disorders as well. So body dysmorphia um, can, uh, I think what a lot of people think of that is, is you know, somebody, um, you know, when somebody looks at themselves in the mirror, they see themselves as you know, maybe a lot heavier than they actually are. um, Or um, they, you know, think that a certain part of their body looks a lot different than or like a lot bigger, or a lot smaller, depending on the body part, than what actually than what it actually may objectively look like. Um, I now, as far as whether people like actually see it that way or not, it's maybe a little bit hard to say because you're not in that person's body and brain. Right. Um, but what I, what what I do observe is that people get very tend to get very fixated Mm. on that. And so, um, it's not necessarily that they're seeing themselves differently, but they get so hyper-focused on this like one part of their body that it's like they're obsessing about it. Yeah. And that's really all they can think about. So how that would tie in with an eating disorder, if somebody is um, is having a dysmorphic experience with like their weight or what their stomach looks like, um, then they might see themselves, they might think that they are overweight or they might think that they, you know, have all of this, you know, fat on their body that is maybe not actually there. So we do tend to see that quite a lot with people that suffer from anorexia, which um, is, uh, you know, an eating disorder where a person is severely restricting um, their food intake. um, And most of the time they end up becoming very malnourished and underweight. But in their mind, they might be if they're super fixated on this one part of their body, then there would be this drive to, okay, well, this has got to be smaller. Um, so that's where I see that overlap. But I would say that I see body dysmorphia in people who don't necessarily have an eating disorder as well. It tends to be, I think, more this like, obs- it has more to do with like an obsessive thought kind of going over and over in your mind. Yeah. And is that, that also
0: control too, Try You know what I mean? Yeah. A fixation is another sense of control. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So because if we can do something to change the way that our body looks in some capacity, right? Like I can, I have control over my weight. I can make myself gain or lose weight. There can be a lot of empowerment, like at least on the surface that, that can come from that.
1: Sure. Well, since you've kind of started to touch on it, um, could you walk us through what are some of the different eating disorders? Because Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. all of our listeners, there's actually quite a few different Types mm-hmm. and manifestations of that. Do you mind just walking us through some of what those are, and then what they look
2: like, and how they manifest for people? Sure. Yeah. So I think um, I'll go through the the three that I would say people are probably the most like familiar with, um, just because they tend to get like the most attention, I think, and they've been just kind of talked about the longest, even in the field of psychology. Um, so I. Um, mentioned anorexia. So anorexia nervosa um, is a, a disorder where people are predominantly really severely restricting their calories. Um, and this can result in really significant weight loss. Um, it can result in amenorrhea. So um, women losing um, their ability to ovulate. So they're not having their period regularly. And um, and uh, there sometimes can be so the focus is really on a lot of that, like a very intense fear of gaining weight um, or again, some of that body dysmorphia can definitely come in there. Somebody seeing themselves as being a lot heavier, having a lot more fat on their body than they actually do. Um, and uh, there can sometimes be purging behaviors that go along with that as well, or other compensatory behaviors. So not only is the person really severely restricting their calories, but they may also be purging after eating, so vomiting or using laxatives, um, just to basically like flush themselves out. Um, I do sometimes, you can sometimes see compulsive exercising that goes along with that as well. So um, a lot of it is very, like the behavior for an anorexic person tends to be very routine, very rigid, very black and white. Um, So That's anorexia. Um, Bulimia nervosa, I think, is another one that most people have, you know, maybe some knowledge about, Um, and that um, has to do with um, a person who is predominantly engaging in kind of a cycle between um, binge eating, so consuming a lot of um, food all at one time, and by a lot, I mean like more than what we would expect, you know, just a a typical person to eat at a meal, Um, and then. to compensate for that, they are engaging in purging behaviors. So, again, could be vomiting or laxative use or diuretics, compulsive exercising. Um, with bulimia, um, it tends to be like, I would say, like a lot more of kind of like a yo yo. Most of the time, um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to, just like looking at a person, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that they're bulimic because most of them are kind of of average body weight. Um, whereas for someone who is severely, um, uh, restricting and is anorexic, most of the time people can tell at a certain point, right. If they've lost a significant amount of weight and they're really malnourished. Um, so bulimia can be really dangerous because it's, um, I think maybe easier to hide. Mm -hmm. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily know just kind of looking at a person that they're struggling with that. Um, and then, um, binge eating disorder um, is the third one, and that predominantly has to do with somebody who is engaging in um, eating large quantities of food. Um, again, kind of above and beyond, you know, what their body needs. Um, and um, but there's no compensatory behavior, so they're not engaging in compulsive exercise or anything else to kind of get rid, try to get rid of the food that they're taking in. Um, so. Um typically, but not always, with someone that has binge eating disorder, we see people who tend to be overweight. Um, but that's not necessarily always the case. Um, and with the binge eating, I would say, whether that be with bulimia or binge eating disorder, a lot of times that's it's very secretive. It's done in private. So um you might come across somebody who doesn't want to eat in front of others. They might like they might even not eat in front of anybody, but then they would, you know, maybe go into, like, their own room and you know eat a bunch of food or they might um, have certain food that they buy and keep hidden um, and uh, a lot of times binge foods can be um, I would say more of like like you know very sugary or processed foods um, or things like that not always but those tend to be what people gravitate towards. Um, they're easier so to those eat in large those. quantities so that makes yeah, sense. Yeah
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah well and they're they're addictive, yeah. Too mm-hmm. right. So, which I know you guys have talked about in your like sugar cereal series, but mm-hmm. sugar and salt are both very addicting. And so, um, I think that it can be it it can be hard for somebody once they start. It's hard for them to stop. So there's kind of that loss of control. So we talked about eating disorders being like a lot about control, um, but for people that struggle with bulimia and with binge eating disorder, there can be, um, a lot of difficulty just like having that loss of control. Um,
0: wow. and for that so, pleasure moment, like that, like intense pleasure That wow, that's interesting. All the,
2: yeah. Impressive. So those I would say like are the three classic ones. And then there, um, two other, like I would say, not necessarily subcategories, but two other types of eating disorders or disorder eating behavior that I see, um, One is ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Um, And that has to do um, a lot with um, people who have a lot of like really like food sensitivities to things and not food sensitivity in the way of like, being allergic, but a lot of sensory issues. Mm. Um, So I tend to see it, I see ARFID a lot in kids, and I would say especially in um, autistic kids Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. have like some other sensory issues and things going on. Um, So um, they might be very, but ARFID can happen in adults too. Um, And so it can be uh, people who are have a lot of sensory sensitivities and issues. So having a problem with like certain textures, or tastes or smells, um, or sometimes even like the color of a food. Um, so that is one that I feel like doesn't get talked about quite as much. Um, but when we're talking about, especially like kids that are like have picky eating, a lot of times it might actually be our fit if we have a kid that is like extremely picky. It's not necessarily that they're just like picky and being disobedient or like just not wanting to like eat the broccoli or whatever. There could be some really significant sensory issues that are kind of going along with that. Um, So that, I I see ARFID quite a bit in the population that I work with. Um, And then orthorexia is another um, eating disorder that I have seen popping up a lot more, I would say even within the last like, you know, five, 10 years. And that has to do with um, people who get very, very focused and um, fixated around um, having to eat in a very specific way, Um, seeing food, like some foods are very bad, some foods are good. So putting like a lot of judgments on foods, which can happen with some of the other just um, eating disorders too. But with orthorexia, it tends to be very health focused. So somebody who, um, you know, maybe somebody who is following like a paleo diet or something like that, and they have just such like a rigidity around that, that there can be almost like this sense of panic Mm. if they go off of that um, or Mm. do anything that's like not in compliance with a specific nutrition plan. And I'm seeing that a lot, I would say, especially as some of these other dietary lifestyles are becoming more like mainstream and popular. So like keto or paleo or Whole30 um, or, you know, you could see it with, you know, vegetarianism as well, um, that people can get really, really focused on having to follow these rules like to a T and not mm-hmm. being able to deter from that. And that causes a lot of stress for, for
0: people. Wow. So then that's true. Instead of food being this nourishment, and this joy and this pleasure in this co- place of community, food just became this scary thing. If you're kind outside of like of the a cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Gosh.
1: Yeah. That's why it's, you know, I know there are some eating protocols that require you to be really strict for a period of mm-hmm. time. But that's why, like, for example, in our keto episodes, Kay and I said yeah. I would I wouldn't adopt that as a permanent right. lifestyle. Yeah. Because yeah. we both realized Ooh-ee. it led a bit to that control yep. issue of feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't have this because it's got this carb count and I can't have that. Yep. And it really was an interesting paradigm shift for yep. me where I I kind of snapped out of it at some point that yep. I was like, oh, I'm being overly Yep. paranoid mm-hmm. yep. about this. And it was mm-hmm. easy to switch into that mindset where we were like, okay, so not a lifetime thing. You yep. have to be able to, you know, something like the autoimmune protocol, you have to be really strict for a set period of time. But mm-hmm. even that is not made to be followed lifelong because mm-hmm. you shouldn't mm-hmm. be restricting your food mm-hmm. to right. that extent. That's why I always promote the eighty twenty rule of yep. 80% mm-hmm. of the times doing things that you know, promote your health and allowing yourself to be more relaxed the other 20% of the time, mm-hmm. knowing you're always moving forward in your health journey, but you're not being so mm-hmm. rigid and mm-hmm. inflexible about it where food becomes
0: your prison. Yes. Yes. Be. yes. Gosh, that's wild.
1: Hey there, Renegades, Elaney here, briefly interrupting this episode of the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. I wanted to highlight a company that Kay and I have recently discovered that we love, and that company is Bulletproof. Bulletproof sells high-quality nutritional supplements, and every product that Kay and I have tried from them personally, we have found to be Excellent. It's important when you choose a supplement that it contain the bioactive forms in order for it to be effective, and Bulletproof has just the right forms in just the right amount. Right now, if you go to bulletproof.com and use the code RENEGADE15 at checkout, you can receive 15% off your order. That's renegade R-E-N-E-G-A-D-E-15. Use that code at checkout to get 15% off and we'll earn a small commission too. Thanks for your support. All right, back to this week's episode of the Renegade Nutrition Podcast.
0: What can people do if they realize they might have an eating disorder? Oh, yes. I think this whole time I've been like, oh, give me the answer. What can I do for my (laughs) my kids and my friends and my everyone? Like, yeah, what are all your suggestions? And yes, give give us your wisdom.
2: Yeah, well, I would say so. Um, if you're if you're an adult and think that you're, you know, struggling in some ways with um, either just like a lot of rigidity, or if you're just noticing, um, whatever your struggle may be with it, um, I think, first of all, like getting to a place where you can like actually acknowledge that there's something going on for you and that you might need some support. That's really the first step step. And I think that that can be the hardest step of somebody just being able to be like, yeah, like, I think I need help around this. Um, and uh, I'm not saying the other steps are easier. <laughs> but I think that initial step is is hard because it, it requires like a level of honesty with ourselves, you know, if that's something that you're struggling with. Um, I am a huge fan of collaborative work. So I think, you know, the, the therapy, I would definitely say somebody um should seek out a therapist Um, because I think that's just, and to be able to work through, there's, there's always something underlying it. It's like not ever just about the food. So whether mm-hmm. it, maybe they did go through a significant trauma or maybe they um are feeling like, you know, they're, they're, life is out of control and so they're needing to find control um, with their food um so i think being able to address like the mental health aspect of it is really important so i would definitely encourage people to seek out a therapist um but i would also concurrently say especially you know depending on like the state if if someone really does i would say qualify for um like if they have a full-fledged eating disorder, I think it needs to go beyond that. So somebody should be working very carefully and their therapist should be working concurrently with, you know, a diet, a dietitian or a nutritionist. So somebody who just has a lot of experience with eating disorders in particular. So not just like a general, like run-of-the-mill dietitian, because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of harmful information out there um and 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 people aren't you know trying to be harmful but i think just kind of a, a lot of how a lot of the training programs that people go through um are not necessarily tailored towards like the eating disorder population and i think there's just you have to be very careful with the way that you approach things with somebody that's struggling with disorder eating so for example you know um counting calories Or keeping track of like percentages of macro and micronutrients under certain like dietary protocols, that might be part of what you do. But for somebody with an eating disorder, that is most of the time, not a good idea, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there's that obsessive quality that kind of comes into it. And they're going to fixate on that. And I can only have x number of calories, or I can only have, you know, this percentage, you know, of, of carbs in my diet. Um, and it can be just, it, it can perpetuate the problem. So um, I, you know, think having somebody who just has a lot of um, uh, experience with working with the eating disorder population is really important um, for the, I mean, for the therapist and for, you know, the nutritionist or the dietitian that they're working with. Um, and I think that it should be a team. They're working together. Um, people who have, I would say, like a more severe case of whatever their diagnosis is um, where it's starting to cause like actual health problems or really starting to interfere with quality of life or just ability to kind of carry out day-to-day tasks. Um, Some people do um, benefit from going to um, a treatment program. So that would be like a residential program um, and the length of time that people are there can really vary. and most of the time it's like a step down program. So I worked um, at a psychiatric hospital for about a year doing um, an internship and we had an inpatient program and then we had a partial hospitalization program where people were there for two meals a day which was about eight hours and then we had an intensive outpatient program where people were there for one meal a day about four hours and then stepped down from there back into kind of just you know more follow-up appointments with um a therapist and a dietitian or a nutritionist. Um so that treatment part of it I think is really important in just getting yourself the support that you need and deserve.
0: Wow. When you're talking to your patients, I'm curious, is it um I, I guess I'm just curious the psychology behind it. Is it sort of coming to an awareness and then a learning and a growth and like a um building their self-worth or, or working through the trauma or uh, I'm just so curious of how that kind of evolution, Mm -hmm. like which side, where do you tend to go in that? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. Yeah. How, how, yeah. yeah, What it looks like.
2: Yeah. So I would, so the work that I do, cause so first of all, I would not actually, I would not consider myself like an eating disorder specialist by any means. So, um, I do, I work a lot with trauma. Mm -hmm. So if I had, um, and, and there's a lot of co occurrence that happens, right. So I see a lot of people that have disordered eating eating behaviors, as a result of a traumatic experience that they have gone through. Um, So I do um, lean more towards like the trauma piece of it, and, Mm -hmm. you know, working through the trauma, and really getting to the core root of the issue. um, Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times it has to do with that trauma, or that self esteem piece of it, right, if somebody Mm -hmm. was bullied in school, um, for whatever reason, you know, whether it had to do with their their body or their appearance or how smart they were or any of that, mm-hmm. um, so really, kind of being able to work with a person, yes, on building that sense of self confidence and mm-hmm. that sense of self worth, because people aren't going to. I feel like people don't really go and seek out treatment unless they really feel like they deserve it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like a person has to value themselves enough to yeah. be able to say like, yes, like I'm, I'm worth it. Like yeah. I'm worth right. getting this help. I'm worth, I'm worth getting healthy.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Gosh, that's just so interesting. Like I, I really enjoy the psychology side of nutrition and this is, yeah, I really side this so interesting to me that it's like so true that if we can get people to know, their own worth and their own value and you know, then to go get help is just really neat and I think it's a key on their journey to health. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting.
1: So you've already touched on this topic somewhat. And so I don't know if you can just take it a little bit deeper for us, but you wrote the book that I mentioned, Don't Pass It On, um, that that focuses on the cycle that can develop between parents who have eating disorders and their children's. Can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. more about what those cycles look like and how they
2: develop. Yeah. So, um, my book, I tried to, so my book was based off of my dissertation and I was really trying to have it be a blend of like what I learned in with my whole child development track. Um, cause it was, it was a lot and it was really cool. Um, and being able to kind of marry that with, okay, so how do we take what we know developmentally about kids and be able to apply it in a way where we can help prevent, um, things, I mean, anything, you know, not just necessarily eating disorders, but can we, you know, help prevent like kids who are really anxious or who have really low self esteem or who are struggling, um, with those kinds of things. So, um, the book is, um, the target audience is parents. And I would say it's particularly focused on mothers, but I feel like it could apply to any parent, um, And a lot of it really focuses on awareness, I would say. So a parent learning how to gain awareness of how they are in front of their kids, because kids are like sponges. They suck in and soak up everything so kate like you said Mm where you know that the you know counting calories and stuff like that isn't necessarily like this you know huge thing or talked about Mm -hmm. a whole lot but then your daughter's like oh how many calories are in this because she watches her dad doing it right so kids soak up everything and that can be really amazing right because there are certain things that as parents we want our kids to um, to soak up and to then emulate. Um, but kids are not discriminatory with that. Mm-hmm. So they will take in literally everything. Um, and so the book is really designed, it kind of goes through the um, d- different developmental stages of childhood and, um, you know, kind of key things that are happening at each age and how, if you're a parent that is um, struggling with disordered eating or Low self esteem or body image concerns, um, or control, and looking at each of those areas. And okay, how at this age, what's most important developmentally for my kid? What is their What's their brain doing? And how can I find a way to make sure that I'm fostering in them, you know, the good that I want them to take out of everything, and not be exposing them to, you know, this negativity or rigidity. So a lot of it, I just would say, has to do with awareness and parents just being very aware of what what they do and what they say in front of their kids Um, and being able specifically around food. I would say being able to um, have food be and mealtime be a very positive um, experience, not be something that's super controlled, For there to be a lot of choices, for there to not be judgment, like there's no such thing as this is a good food, or this is a bad food, um, or you have to eat all of this, or you're only allowed to eat this. Um, So there just being a lot of um, autonomy, especially as the kids get older, because autonomy is a really big thing. Mm -hmm. That's part of what helps with that control piece. If a child feels like they are able to make some of their own choices, there's going to be um, less of an issue, most likely later on for there to be some of those control issues that develop.
0: Wow. That's interesting. It's funny. The messed up part of my brain when you were talking was like, as an adult, you need to hide it better. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 you know, like from your kids. But I'm like, no, no, you have to grow through it yourself, and then you yeah. know, model that for your kids. You know, like, but
2: that, but that may be the first step, right? Because, yeah, oh, that's so true. Say, that's like, true. You know, that may be the first step because if you're a parent, so maybe you are really struggling with an eating disorder, and you, and you have your own like mm-hmm. negative thoughts, and and you're really you are really struggling in yourself. You know, I would mm-hmm. say, yes, if you need to like. Put on a mask and, okay. <laughs> you know, be positive for yeah. your kids. That is important. Yeah. But yes, behind that, you you do need to be eventually, or I would encourage you to really be doing your own work because eventually when your kids get old enough, they're going to be able to kind of see behind yep. that mm-hmm. facade. Yep. They're too. smart so, enough.
0: Yep. Um, Yep. Yeah, And the energy behind what you're doing. Like, yeah, after a while, the kids know, like, you're faking it. This is forced, and it yeah, feels... They see you're not mm-hmm. walking your top. Yeah, yeah, it feels so. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So
1: would you say that's kind of the first step for a lot of parents in breaking that cycle, then, is not masking it, but changing, whether they feel like it or not, changing their mm-hmm. behavior yeah. around their kids?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say like, yeah, being able to kind of take so specifically around food, like taking judgments off of things, taking labels off of things and um, having it be especially with young kids, like you want it to be like a fun, like exploratory process, like I'm a huge proponent of offering like a lot of choices um, to kids. So not like infinite choices and not like I'm going to be making like eight different meals, you know, in a night. But you know if you're wanting exposing your kid to a lot of different types of food um and different combinations and made in different presentations um and encouraging them to try just mm-hmm. try all of it and see what you like and see what you don't like because i i feel like we're our, our bodies when we're kids are we're very intuitive and we're very connected in with our bodies but i mm-hmm. feel like especially in our society we are um not necessarily intentionally taught this way but it's very easy for for us to get disconnected from our bodies and for that intuitive piece for that to like disappear Um, and so then we start like not really trusting ourselves or trusting our bodies or trusting like the, the the cues that our body is giving us and so being able to um you know encourage your kids to like listen to those you know and respond to that kids are most of the time kids are going to make the right choices for their body if they're given the opportunity to do that Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. and what's best for their own body that's interesting i um i am fine with my body weight i'm an average size but it's funny i'll talk to eleni and i'm like gosh i just wish i could lose those five to ten pounds and and lady, you said this and this hit me you're like Maybe your body, this is the healthiest for your body mm-hmm. and your body intuitively feels good at this weight, you know, but I'm comparing mm-hmm. to Instagram or some model or something. Mm-hmm. But it has been really good for me, a lady, to be like, Maybe my body's okay at this weight. Maybe I'm okay, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Like we all struggle with that, but it's right. just just that mindset shift of like, okay, listen to your body mm-hmm. and um, trust it, you know. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool.
1: But, I'm glad that helped
0: yeah I know let's see once the person overcomes an eating disorder are they always at risk of coming back? What can someone do to recognize and prevent these relapses?
2: yeah so um I mean I like I'm a pretty optimistic person so I would like to say that like once you've kind of overcome something like yes that's it um but that is an I would say that there is definitely a point in a person's recovery where it's not going to be something that is like constantly on their mind all the time. But I would say like the risk factors kind of always are going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is just an, a reason why it's so important just to be very aware and in tune with yourself um, because, um, you know, things can happen when there's like, you um, you know, a really stressful situation that comes up or you're going through like a really difficult life event, um, or there's, you know, an unexpected illness or injury or a death in the family or something like that. There, there's these things that can just trigger us in a way that can, you know, again, a lot of it kind of coming back to that piece of control can kind of trigger that response of wanting to revert back into um, into some of that behavior. So I would say I mean, kind of just like with anything, I think people can be in what I would say like in remission or we would call it like maybe in recovery from a certain, um, you know, condition or diagnosis, but it's, it's not ever something to just totally just like let go of and not be continuing to like take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really important. I think just that maintenance, like making sure you are taking care of yourself, making sure you have, you know, a good support system, um making sure I'm not necessarily like a proponent of people having to be like in therapy for the rest of their lives. And, you know, I have to go see my therapist every week for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that, you know, therapy, it, I, I I consider it to be a tool. And so when there's a stressful situation that comes up or something like that, knowing like, okay, it's just like another tool in my tool belt, it's something that I can utilize. And so, um, you know, I have that where people. I will, I will discharge people and maybe like six months, a year, two years down the line, there's another stressful event that comes up and they want to come back and see me again for a period of time. So I think that maintenance phase, um, it, the maintenance phase really is lifelong. Um, and so you just need to stay vigilant to and connect it in with your body and, and with your emotions of really being able to know what you need at any given time sure
0: i have a selfish psychology question for myself right now okay (laughs) so um i I got i always got to thinking when you were like well it's a sense of control to eat this way and like the control side of it so then for me i'm like okay let go of that control k and just be and you're just okay to be okay felt like my Mm -hmm. answer to control um do you use that is that kind of some of the answer of like your your self-worth in itself is good you can just be okay to mm-hmm. be or do you have give people other tools as well and maybe it's an overlap but or are you more like how about you control your finances instead or do you let you know what I mean do you redirect <laughs> control do you let go of control do you squeeze question. control tighter like yeah <laughs> do <you> do <laughs> yeah yeah
2: yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say it's maybe a little bit of both. And it would be I think kind of individualized like to the person. Okay. Um, but you know, so being able to find control in other areas, if you if you can do it in a way that is healthy, okay. um, and is going to be benefiting you. Yes, I think there's that. And, and I think also being able to look at Because that sense of wanting to control like your food intake a lot of time, the root of that, it comes from, well, there were all of these things in my life that I could not control. And so now I'm going to find control over the one thing that I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, it can be it can be a little tricky, right, because we don't necessarily want I don't want to be like kind of reinforcing that sense of like, yes, like you need to be in control of this thing, because Mm -hmm. I mean, life happens so you know sometimes like if someone gets really in control of their finances i mean maybe something happens with like a business or a job or losing insurance or something like that Mm -hmm. and so um life really (laughs) is unpredictable Mm -hmm. and so um i would say that i i kind of more tend to try to point people in the path of what um this is a a phrase from dialectal behavior therapy which is one of the therapy modalities that i use it's called radical acceptance Mm. Um, and it's about coming to a place of accepting things like things are the way that they are and it's not a sense of just like passivity or just like oh well there's nothing i can do about it or just kind of like um just like acquiescing to like whatever your circumstances Mm. are but about just being able to be okay Mm -hmm. with like circumstances the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And that not necessarily like, well, this is just how circumstances are always gonna be, but this is where I am right now. And finding a way to still like be okay in that Mm, and be able to take care of yourself in that. That I think that acceptance piece to me is a lot more valuable than, okay, well, I'm going to just find like other things (laughs) that I can control.
0: Yeah, Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And very interesting. And that does seem in line with, we had a um, energy healer on here and she always had Mm -hmm. me to say the certain thing. It was like, I take in life easily and I accept the good or whatever. And that was the same idea Mm -hmm. though. It was just like, it's so true that acceptance of like Oh, you know, and I'm just such a fighter in my heart. I'm just fighting everything. And it's like, just stop Mm -hmm. and just accept it and then build from there, but just kind of breathe a little. Mm -hmm. So that's really good. No, that was really great advice. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah. So what can the friends and family of somebody who has an
2: eating disorder do to help support them? Sure. Well, I think, um, I mean, having support is, really important (laughs) um not everybody always has that um you know i would say so um if if you're a parent and you're noticing things um with your children like if you're noticing sort of disordered eating behavior or I i guess any other like mental health concern with your children um i think really fostering a sense of open communication um, and being able to talk about what's going on, being able to talk about your feelings, being able to talk about your experiences um, and have it be like in a non-judgmental environment um, is really, really important. Um, but I would say too, like, so yes, having that support of friends and family is really is really important. Um, but also I think knowing that knowing kind of where to set the boundary with that because at the end of the day with an adult for example well I guess I mean even with kids kids have less choice than adults do but at the end of the day a person is only going to be able to be in recovery and get healthy if they make the choice to do it Um, so I think a lot of times there can be um, and it can be really scary sometimes right because if you have a loved one that is struggling really significantly with an eating disorder so let's say they're severely, you know, anorexic and really malnourished, and they're experiencing health concerns, um, really significant health concerns, and they're not ready to accept help or treatment, there's really kind of only so much that, you know, friends and family can do. Um, And so, and that's really hard. (laughs) But I think, you know, trying to find that You know boundary around you know a person needs to be able to find their own path and be able to find their own source of healing um now for kids i would say like as a parent it's part it would be like our job to kind of pave the way for the child right and um you know parents you know make choices make medical (laughs) and legal choices for their children so um you know get your get your child into therapy have them be working with um with a nutritionist or a dietitian who specializes, um, in working with children, um, and, you know, providing them with those resources, even outside of yourself, because, you know, I think a lot of times parents want to be like the answer for their kids, or they want their kids to come talk to them about everything. And a lot of kids do. Um, but there's something about having somebody outside of your family, who's just kind of in that Mm -hmm. more objective space Mm -hmm. and there's not judgment um that they just they might open up and talk more to somebody who is not their mom yeah <laughs> um yeah. and that's you know and that doesn't mean that you're a bad mom or like not doing good enough because your kid isn't wanting to come talk to you it just has to do with that dynamic and it's just easier sometimes to be able to talk to somebody who's not like emotionally like impacted yeah by mm-hmm. what's going on
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah that so makes smart. so much sense
0: What are your favorite resources for individuals struggling with eating disorders?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I actually don't know right off the top of my head if I have anything specific, but one thing that I would say, um, that, and this is maybe like a plug in favor to a certain degree of social media. Um, social media definitely has, it's like, negative components to it. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you are looking in the right place, you actually can find the right resources. Um, yes. And I would say like kids and teenagers, they're all about social media and YouTube and mm-hmm. things like that. And so um, there's a lot available that I would say, um, if you can find yourself in the right place, because um, again, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And mm-hmm. um, but those would be the kinds of things that I would be like looking for. Um, I think that there are a lot of like supportive communities that can be that have been established, um, either through you know social media or different like online platforms or you know virtual platforms. I feel like have become kind of a bigger thing since you know um, since COVID started a few years ago. Um, I think finding support and community is really important. So, um, whether that be in like a private Facebook group or, um, you know, an online support group or, um, group therapy, Mm -hmm. um, I also, um, I also love Amazon. So I would say even just going and doing a search on like whatever specific, you know, thing that you're looking for, um, and just seeing what pops up, I would read reviews. Um, I'm a big reviewer because mm-hmm. I think that's important too. You want to make sure that you're, you know, getting into the right resources, but there's a lot, there's a lot of books out there. There are a lot of websites. There's a lot of support groups. Um, I would say, and trying to find things that are local, I think, could be really helpful too. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause again, it's, you know, establishing that sense of community um, so that you just feel like you're not alone because mm-hmm. um, you're not that's a big thing that people yeah because yep. you're not but a yep. lot of people feel that way yeah so.
0: mm-hmm. yep. yeah that's so true that even like the computer and social media it's not bad in itself it's everything is how you use it if it's good or bad so that's really smart and reach out people want to help and they're out there so yeah. yeah that's all really wise so yeah is are there any other thoughts on eating
1: disorders or anything we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about today And you don't have Um, to have something, but.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think, I don't necessarily think so. I I could go on, like, I could probably talk for hours about, like, the overlap between, like, disordered eating and, like, neurodivergent conditions, because that's just, that's kind of my wheelhouse in the population that I work with. Um, But I would say just, especially I would say, like, parents of neurodivergent children that the the eating stuff and the food stuff might not be just as simple and straightforward as it would be with a neurotypical child. And so I just think there's just a lot there. A lot of times there's sensory issues, there might be like actual food allergies and sensitivities too. Um, a lot of you guys talked about this in some of your other episodes, but a lot of children with ADHD and autism have um, autoimmune conditions or like pretty significant like food allergies and things like that. Um, and they're also they also tend to be some of the pickiest eaters. and they might have even kind of that ARFId profile mm-hmm. um, where, you know, so I would just say, if you are a parent of a neurodivergent child, or if you're neurodivergent yourself, or if you have a family member that's neurodivergent and and struggling with some of the eating stuff that, it's a lot, it's really complicated um, and it's not necessarily just so cut and dry. And so I think that goes back to just really making sure that you're finding the right sources of support. Um, That's really, really important Um, because it's really hard trying to navigate that on your own if you don't have the right resources in place. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So for our listeners,
1: how can they, first of all, are you taking new clients and then if, if so, how can people reach out to you? How can they connect with you? Social media? Do you have a website? All of those sorts of things. How can people find you?
2: Yes, I have all of those things and lots of them. And we'll put
1: them (laughs) in the show notes too, but I always like to say them out loud.
2: Yeah. Um, I am am taking, I'm for sure taking new testing clients. I am always, always, always taking new testing clients. Um, I have not turned away therapy clients because I know that there is a need. Um, I am reaching capacity um we are looking to hire too so we're hoping to be able to bring on a couple of other providers that we can really meet that meet that need um the website for my so my practice is called holistic resources and our website is holisticresourcesclinic.com um so you can find all of our contact information there and reach to, reach out to us there and get um scheduled in um we do take uh, some insurances, so all of that information is there. Uh, we are, I am pretty active on social media, so uh, I have a Facebook page and Instagram for my company, Holistic Resources. Um, on Facebook, I think our handle is Holistic Resources, and then on Instagram, it is Holistic Resources Clinic. Um, I also have my own Instagram um, page, which is dr.cristina.sty and, um, we have, uh, if people are interested in my book, um, we have, a, a website. My book's available on Amazon. Um, it is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Um, and, uh, we also have, uh, we're self published. So, um, uh, my publishing website is Holistic publishingcom and I'm on Instagram there as Holistic Publishing LLC. I think is our handle, and on we'll put Facebook. That in the notes. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah. lot of handles to remember. Yep, yep. No, I'll yeah. listen to it and put it in the notes.
1: Well, good. Um, and just for a, a a shameless plug for your book, um, <laughs> because I got to read it kind of before it was mass published because I had the privilege of getting to do some of the illustrations for each chapter. And um, I was so blown away by how helpful it was for me. I'm not even a parent yet, but I think one of the comments I made to you, Christina, was I'm so glad I read this book before I had kids Mm -hmm. because it beyond even I I would recommend that book for any parent, whether they struggle with disordered eating or those sorts of behaviors or not because I just it really opened my eyes up you had so much on the developmental um, Mm -hmm. stages like each stage and what's happening developmentally that I was like every parent should have access to this
0: information okay I better read it (laughs) yeah that was really
1: helpful for me where you went through from birth and the different stages through toddlerhood and then getting into adolescence and the behaviors that emerge at each stage. And it was really helpful for me, even for, you know, I, I watch kids, you know, I watch my neighbor's kid um, every week. And it, it's even helped me in how I relate to him and, and mm-hmm. how I help and encourage him And things I say and don't say and behaviors I engage in and don't engage in that Mm. I wouldn't have known otherwise, but I just learned from, okay, he's at this stage. These are the things he's beginning to learn and explore. And here's how I can encourage that and not be like Mm
0: -hmm.
1: hovering or overly helpful to the point where I'm hurting him because I'm, I'm keeping him from learning, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, I thought it was, it was just a great book for any parent. And I think everybody would benefit from understanding more about those stages, more about those behaviors. Cause I think parents, everything's new, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yep. you're, you never know like yep. what's normal and what's not normal. And so yeah. even for me, just, you know, because we hope to become parents, it gave me a lot of reassurance about becoming a parent where I'm like, Oh, I'll feel so much better when my kid starts engaging in these behaviors because i'll know oh that's normal and that's natural and here's how i respond to it as a parent to encourage their healthy development instead of reacting or doing the the wrong mm-hmm. thing or discouraging a behavior that's actually natural for them to engage in mm-hmm. that yeah. may be frustrating to me as an adult yep. <laughs> but the child right. has to go through that behavior in order to develop so anyway yep totally you're shameless like, plug so because like, i think I this, no. everybody yep. should read that <laughs> book. I by no means feel like i'm going to be an expert, but just i feel a lot more equipped having yeah. read that. So i highly recommend it for any parent at any stage because i think it would just be really helpful for learning how to interact with your child and create and promote healthy behaviors and and intellectual development.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. awesome. And i i didn't ask i didn't ask you about this ahead of time, but i actually so um, if there are listeners that are interested in the book, I do have some promo codes for the audiobook. Ooh, so ooh. I don't know if that would maybe be something that you guys would be interested sure. in doing, yeah. like yeah. a sweepstakes or something like that. But I would love to be able to maybe offer like a few free copies to people who are interested
0: yeah Um, Yeah. we could do a giveaway yeah yeah we love it yeah
1: do like a giveaway or something like that okay we'll brainstorm i would love to do that and if you didn't hear they are looking for help so if you are a psychologist and you're listening to this episode or you have a friend who's a psychologist who might be interested in working for uh dr christina's practice yeah reach out reach out to her on yeah all of those
0: resources she yes. gave you. Yeah. Also
2: <laughs> all social media and through our website. Yeah. We have our job posting there yeah. too.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for all of your sage wisdom. This was so good. And you, um, Eleni and Christina, you sisters are like helping the world in every, every sphere <laughs> of, <laughs> of vocation here. So you two are a joy and so good to hear all of your wisdom of your ages of of therapy and so hey
1: thank you thank you i agree thank you thanks for joining us absolutely
0: yep Yep. very glad to be here thank you and for our renegades go be renegades go be renegades thank you for listening to the renegade nutrition podcast
1: please keep in mind that this podcast is an educational service that provides general health information the content on this podcast is not a substitute for direct, personal, professional medical care and diagnosis. You should always talk to your doctor before making a dietary or lifestyle change. Go be Renegades! Go be Renegades!